Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and we continue with our birth stories for the summer series. It's a jam-packed episode today with five very different stories, from traumatic to physiological to emergency cesarean with placental abruption to VBAC to home birth and a bit of Lyme disease thrown in there to keep you on your toes. Bronwyn Fackrell shares it all. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Aeroflow Breast Pumps, a durable medical equipment provider specializing in helping moms receive maximum coverage and reimbursement for a breast pump through insurance. Let Aeroflow take the hassle out of getting the pump that's right for you. Learn more at aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be, and Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be. Thanks again for all the love you give the show, and I really, really, really enjoy all your requests and comments, as well as reading your reviews. So if you like what you hear, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review so that we can get the show in front of even more parents. Big shout-out to Mando Blando, Patient BZ, and another listener whose review name I can't pronounce since it's spelled F-H-J-O-I-F-C, but who wrote, quote, After I subscribed, every episode led me to learn about some topic relevant or related to my childbirth and pregnancy journey. I went back through the feed and explored topics that I just wanted to have some familiarity with, and I got so much more than I planned from listening to this podcast. If you're on a quest for good information, look no further. End quote. Thank you to all of you for your reviews. I love them. All right. Quick reminder that if you're around 29 to 34 weeks pregnant or near that, this is the perfect time for you to start preparing to, for life with a newborn. Not just the having a birth part, but all the fabulous craziness that starts right after the baby comes out. So the truth is, childbirth education classes are fantastic. They're great, but they do not really get into what you need to know to survive and thrive during the first three months of life with baby. Let me help you with that. Check out my Thrive With Your Newborn online postpartum preparation course, postpartum preparation course at birthfulcourses.com. This is not a class on newborn care, but rather one on how to understand, connect with, and enjoy the baby you got while also taking care of his or her primal needs and then at the same time figure out your new identity as a parent without losing yourself. There is so much that happens those first few weeks. Make sure you don't get lost in the process. It's The class is five weeks of super relevant content that you can take at your own pace and then also go back and review after baby arrives. So you want to do this now before baby arrives. Go sign up at birthfulcourses.com. All right, so on to today's show, and it's jam-packed with tons of stories because I have today Bronwyn Fackrell to share her five birth stories. Bronwyn, thank you so much for being here. I'm really happy to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here, too. Yay, and you have... An array of experiences. So I think the biggest challenge for us today is going to get through all the different uh, different births you've had. I Yes, but I think we are up to the challenge. Let's do I it. I think we can do this. Yeah, <laughs> we can do this. All right. So start us back way in the beginning for your first birth. Like what were your thoughts about birth then and what did you do to prepare? What were your wishes for birth? I was 
a grad student. My husband and I were both grad students, and we got pregnant. And I had always kind of looked at birth as a little bit of a science experiment. Um, I, I have a background in biology, and I love that. And I don't like hospitals. And so we were living in an area that had a freestanding birth center, and I really wanted to do that. But I let other people's fears talk me out of that. Mm. And that combined with out-of-pocket expenses, we were starving students. There was no way we could have afforded it anyway. So we ended up going a standard OB hospital route. But I still wanted very much a physiologic, more natural approach. Okay. And that's not what we got. I very much got shuffled through the system. Do you think it was there was a uh, was you were you were told things and then it was like a bait and switch situation, or do you feel that you didn't know so much about birth and then to make the like what were how was the experience? Well, first of all, we were feared of going the the midwife route there were just lots of people telling us horror stories but then once we were in the system you know you there are just questions that you don't even think to ask and you don't know that until you're into it and it's too late i didn't know that you know you can decline certain things i didn't know that it's just kind of a one-size-fits-all approach and it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody mm -hmm. so And we took the hospital tour, and I saw that they had squatting bars, and I said, oh, that's good. That means they're going to support, you know, women who aren't having an epidural, and that's going to be good. But when it came down to it, no, they really didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of left us to our own devices. They asked us many times, do you want an epidural? And by the way, you need Pitocin because... Well, you were three centimeters three days ago, and you're still three centimeters. So let's just get that stetosin going. What has you know? So why were you at the hospital then? Like, had your water broken? Were you having an induction? Um, I had planned to have an induction again because family members had talked me into it. They said, "Oh, there's it's no big deal." You know, there's no advantage to waiting for labor to start. Just go ahead and plan it. Mom and dad are coming into town anyway, so you want to make sure that the birth happens while they're there. Just go ahead and plan it. There's no big deal around that. And again, questions I didn't think to ask. You know, I didn't know that inductions came with continuous monitoring. I didn't know that Pitocin contractions were a whole different ball game than natural contractions. Mm-hmm. You know, just those sorts of things. But I did go into labor on my own. I happened to go into labor just a few hours before the induction was supposed to start. Um, we were supposed to be there at 6 a.m. And I woke up at 2 and I said, ow. Is that a contraction? And then 2.06, I said, ow, that really is a contraction. And then 2.12 and then 2.18 and then 2.24. Like they were regular right from the start. Right. And six minutes apart right from the start. Yeah, yeah. So we thought, okay, good. We're rocking and rolling. We don't need that induction. And we got to the hospital and they said, well, but you're still at three centimeters and you were a few days ago. So let's just go ahead and start you on Pitocin. Mm. And so that was the beginning of that. So I had Pitocin and I actually managed pretty well, but somewhere around, so that, that was early in the morning, somewhere around early afternoon, I said, you know, I am managing this, but I know I don't have to, you know, they'd worn me down by then. Mm -hmm. And so I, I asked for an epidural. And by then, 
the anesthesiologist who had come by and introduced himself, he was doing a C-section at that time. So they're like, well, he's not available for the next little bit. How about we give you some Stadol? Okay, another question I didn't think to ask. Stadol and I don't get along well. Mm. I felt like I was having out-of-body experiences. It made me loopy and dizzy and no, did not do anything for the pain. And mm. before they could do it, they wanted to check me and make sure I was far enough along for that. And my baby was asynclitic. And so that first nurse couldn't reach my cervix and she was digging and pushing and it was so painful. Mm. And she said, hold on, I need to go get somebody else. And she got brought in her friend and I'm like, no, don't do this. And she was digging and pushing and couldn't reach it. And they said, go get Terry. She has super long fingers. And I'm just like crawling away from them at this point. Why are you doing this to me? And they said, we have to document this. We have to do this. You have no choice. And so I kind of felt gang raped. I can I can understand that, especially telling you that you have no choice when in fact you do. Right. Right. We have to document this and this is the only way we can do it. And so she finally said, oh, you're you're at a six. I think I was. And if you need to check her again, go to the right. And they left me bloody and in tears and loopy on drugs. Oh, no. Yeah. I feel like I need to apologize for that. Like, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Yeah. And I'm looking at my husband saying, can you do anything about this? And he was young and uninformed, too. Like, we didn't know what rights we had. Mm -hmm. But that's that's how it worked out. And then the anesthesiologist was finally done. And he came in about an hour later. And by this time, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And he gave me an epidural and... Yes, it felt wonderful. Finally, I was done. And then that first nurse came back in and said, okay, time for your catheter. And I said, what? Nobody told me that catheters and epidurals go together. Mm. Nobody told me that I'd already felt completely violated and they wanted to do more to me. And by then it was too late to go back. I already had the epidural. Right. And so I just felt up one side and down the other like this was not what I signed on for how do thinking feeling women do okay with this like why are they okay with this but uh, by five o'clock I was complete and it was time to push so I it, I had made enough progress I really only had the epidural for not much more than two hours mm-hmm. and I, I pushed for an hour on my back purple pushing and the doctor reached for his scissors and without telling me, cut an episiotomy. And there was my baby, 6.01 p.m. Hmm. So that was my firstborn. He, he was a boy. And I just was so anxious to get out of there. I, that was such a horrendous experience. I wanted to get out. Wanted to, and they said, well, you, we can discharge you at 24 hours. And so they kind of left us alone for the rest of the evening. I breastfed to the best of my ability. I thought I was doing okay. And the next morning, the hospital pediatrician came in, literally hand-waving and very hysterical, saying, your baby's lost 4% of his weight. 10% means brain damage. You can't possibly go home today. And then he left the room. He left the building. And every nurse that came in, we said, our baby's is in danger. The doctor just told us that. And the nurses looked at us like, 
you clueless, hysterical first-time parents. Hmm. And I don't know if they didn't know that that particular pediatrician used those sorts of scare tactics. tactics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And years later, I would learn that IVs, especially with Pitocin, can make the baby gain water weight during labor. Mm -hmm. And that water weight comes off very quickly. And so it looks like they're losing a lot of weight, but really it was weight that they just gained during labor. I didn't know that. Nobody mentioned that as a side effect of Pitocin. Not a lot of people do. No, no. So the whole rest of the day, we're like, what's wrong with our baby? And these nurses keep telling us it can take up to two weeks for a baby to regain their weight. Everything's fine. You know, here's your, you can use this pump, but really your baby's okay. Mm-hmm. But the doctor scared the living daylights out of us. Well, and especially telling you that 10% is brain dead when that's completely false. I know. Yeah. I know. Oh. But we, we, we didn't know. Right. We just didn't know. So then it, the next day, we did stay another day, and the next day he came back and he said, I will only release your baby if you agree to come back in two days for a weight check. And he made that appointment with us. This was Kaiser out on the West Coast, and so they have a very integrated healthcare system. You know, the the hospitals and the and the doctor's offices are all completely integrated. So he made that appointment for us, and it ended up being with him. And he's like, your appointment's at 9 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. And then the nurse came in and said, so here's your appointment card. It's at 9.15. And I said, well, wait a second. And the doctor said, oh, well, I just told you 9 o'clock so you wouldn't be late. Wow. (laughs) He was presumptuous. He was a bully. I mean, there's just no way around it. And then when we finally did have that appointment, our baby had gained um, almost a full ounce and so he was doing okay. And the doctor said, you know, there really was no danger. I just didn't want you to give up breastfeeding. <gasps> Did you explain to them, to him right there and then, that that was not the way to encourage and support a breastfeeding relationship? <laughs> My goodness. I was, so, I was so overwhelmed, caught completely flat-footed, didn't know anything one way or another. But that was my first taste of breastfeeding advocacy. Ugh. Uh, yeah. And and I want to I want to like many years later give you some like support and encouragement because the fact that in light of all that your baby gained a full ounce means that you were doing amazing at feeding your baby. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. But but we had been scared because ten percent of weight loss meant brain damage. <sighs> Uh, So we didn't go back until the two-week checkup, and this time it was with a different doctor, and uh, my baby was exactly at his birth weight. And I said, okay, cool. That means we're we're okay. And that doctor said, well, he really should be above it by now. Why don't you come back in two days for another weight check? And at that point, I said, you know what? You guys, none of you are on the same page. I am tired of trying to figure out what what the real deal is. I don't know who's telling the truth. And I went home and I got the free samples of formula that the hospital sent us home with and I started bottle feeding. Mm. And of course, now that I know that his birth weight was probably inflated, he probably was above his birth weight. Mm. And even at two weeks, there's no steadfast rule. That's like the, that's what they've gone on for. for right. That's the like established, so two weeks. But more recent research has shown that it might be less, it might be more. 
Right. And every everyone's going to gain at an individual rate. And yeah. yeah, no. So we were fed horrible information and it sabotaged our breastfeeding relationship as well as having a traumatic birth. And um, I didn't completely wean him. But from that day on, he got more bottles than nursing sessions. Mm-hmm. And I said, next time, this is what we're going to do right. I, I, um, I know a lot of women who have traumatic births and they're just scared to do it again. I was the one that said, I have to do it right next time. And so I can't wait to do it again. Um, and I weaned him completely at six months. And then we started trying again at eight months. But I didn't know that I didn't know how to track my cycles yet. So I wasn't totally fertile mm-hmm. until um, I did conceive again. He was 11 months old, but uh, because I didn't know how to track my cycles, I didn't know how far along I was. And there was a whole debacle about, yeah, you're pregnant. Oh, look, it looks like a blighted ovum. Oh, never mind. It's not. It's just a healthy pregnancy. We just didn't know how far along you were. Like All of that could have been avoided if I'd known how to track my cycles. So all of these things that I've learned along the way. Anyway, did what? So, what that, did you did specifically to figure out how to track your cycle? I read "Taking Charge of Your Fertility," mm-hmm. and I signed on with FertilityFriend.com, and I talked to lots of women who've been doing it for years. And but that wasn't until after my daughter was born. Okay. So I learned. I'm learning little by little throughout the years. What was the the website Fertility Friend? fertilityfriend.com but you know this was 10 years ago i think they have apps now yeah no they do yeah yeah, yeah. and i did um i'm going to i'm just writing it down for to put it in uh, links in the resource section on the show notes um sure. and i'll also link to a, a to a podcast that i did on on not on fertility but it was specifically on your cycle like on menstruation being the fourth vital sign um yes yeah of of knowing yes, I listened to that one. Yeah, cool. Awesome. So I'll link to that too. Okay. Yay. Yeah, so so after we got that sorted out, that went ahead and that was a healthy pregnancy. Uh, by this time we'd moved across the country. We were now living in, in New York, upstate, and um I made friends with some of the with someone who just raved about her hospital midwife, her her certified nurse midwife. And so I started seeing her and we were set for a, this time we really were going to go with a natural hospital birth and it was going to be great. And so it was, I went into labor the day before my due date Mm. and it was during a snowstorm and I did lots of walking out in the snowstorm that ended up being my longest labor. Uh, We went to the hospital that evening and they said, well, uh, you're not really progressing you could either stay here and we won't feed you or you could go home. And I said, sure, I'm going home. Easy choice. <laughs> Easy choice. Yeah. So I went home and I labored by myself through the middle of the night. And that was awesome. I loved being just on my own terms. Mm. And, and then about five o'clock in the morning, I couldn't stay warm anymore. And I went and woke up my husband. And that's now I know I was in transition. Car ride in transition was not fun. But we got there, and by then I was like, okay, never mind on this natural plan. I want an epidural, but it was too late. Um, she was born half an hour later, and the midwife didn't make it. <laughs> uh, so, it was a miracle you made it to the hospital. Yeah, it kind of was. Uh, it kind of was. 
but that one just worked out so much better. And I said, I was right. Birth doesn't have to suck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was an amazing experience. I felt so empowered. I felt so capable. I just, I saw that I looked down long enough to see that she was a girl. And then I sat back and said, I did it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's my baby. She was born. Oh, I'm, and, I really love that you had that a, a great experience. Like I, I don't wish the first experience on anybody because that's right. definitely very hard. But I'm glad that you were able to do the second one on your own terms and have that sort of complete contrast of the right. previous. Yeah, yeah. Right. So now, spoiler before, alert that that ended up being my most physiologic birth ah okay the one where every where everything was on my body's terms including the water didn't break until the baby's head came out okay everything was just on my body's terms Mm -hmm. i am going to stop you right there because we need to take a break um but after that well definitely so i wrote down most physiological of all five (laughs) give give people a clue of how many we're doing (laughs) we'll be right back Getting a breast pump? Let Aeroflow make the process super easy for you. First, they will verify your eligibility for a breast pump through your insurance plan. Then, they'll recommend the best breast pump for your lifestyle and breastfeeding goals, and they'll even contact your physician for the prescription. If there are any supplies and accessories that will benefit your pumping experience, they'll recommend those too, and at the same time, they will determine if those supplies and accessories are also covered under your plan. Then, they will bill your insurance provider for your pump and ship it to your door free of charge. How awesome is that? Aeroflow offers a wide selection of pumps from top manufacturers like Hygieia, Evenflow, Spectra, Amida, and more, so you can get exactly what you need. And if you don't have insurance, or in the case that your breast pump is not covered 100% by insurance, Aeroflow can get you a breast pump at a lower price than big box retailers. Get all the details at aeroflowbreastpumps.com birthful, and don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who got you there. And we are back. And so we've gone through number one, number two. Number two was an incredible high on your own terms and completely physiological. And then what was your what what was your journey after that? My journey took a complete turn after that because I rode that high for months. But then after a while, even at the best of circumstances, and I've talked to other women about this, too. Even the greatest birth, you, after a while, you start thinking, well, what if this had been a little bit different? Could it have been better? Mm. So my thing was, I started thinking, what had the hospital done for us? I mean, did we really need to be there? Um, that birth could have happened anywhere, and it would have gone fine. So I started looking into home birth, and my world turned completely upside down. Whichever, is it the red pill or the blue pill? Right. The matrix, whichever one it is, I took it and my world was never the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that people still did this. I didn't know that they did it in my own area. Although at the time, the midwives were underground. Um, but that, I was so set on doing that the next time around and I couldn't wait to do it again. And of course, by then I'd learned more about breastfeeding. And so I knew that I didn't have to wean at a year. 
we could just keep going. And some women even get pregnant and they tandem nurse. And I said, sure, that sounds great. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. So, so, so breastfeeding I, with the, with your daughter went went well and it was... so much better. Okay, so much better. Yes. Um, and then I didn't get any fertility back until she was well over a year old. So we didn't start trying until she was about sixteen, seventeen months. I had an early miscarriage, and then I was just really, really anxious to do it again. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of women feel that way after a loss. Yes. So I started looking into all kinds of supplements to help me the next time around. What did you do and differently? What were, what do you think you did, you know, in terms of preparation to enhance your fertility or during, different from the, before the loss? Um, I used Vitex. I tried a progesterone cream. And, of course, just a general making sure that my diet was adequate, um, filling in gaps here and there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the way that I did it because, as you'll hear, number three didn't turn out quite the way we expected it to. All right. Um, I did I did conceive, and I was still nursing, but uh, I bled almost that entire pregnancy. So I don't think he ever implanted well. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, you mentioned when you emailed me that you had SCH, and I had uh-huh. to look it up because I didn't know what that was. Okay. Can you explain a little yeah. bit more what it stands for? And yeah. So a subchorionic hematoma is relatively common uh, for women who have bleeding in the first trimester. That's often the cause of it. It's just a little gap between the placenta and the, and the uterus, and it can cause some bleeding. Most of them resolve with no further issue. A few of them result in a miscarriage. And then there's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Mine was mine was neither of those things. So I went on, and I had had spotting in my previous two pregnancies as well. So I really wasn't that concerned about it. But it didn't stop after the first trimester. It kept going. And my home birth midwife said, you know, we, we really need to maybe figure out if you have placenta previa or... And she had a she had a relationship with a, a practice who could order an ultrasound for us. And no, we couldn't see anything wrong. In retrospect, my placenta was way up high on the back of my uterus. I don't think we could see anything. So that's not too surprising. Mm-hmm. But uh, the bleeding just kept increasing. And at 25 weeks, I thought it was hemorrhaging. But it turned out my water broke. And it was just mixing with the blood to make it look like there was greater volume. Okay. So there went my home birth. And also, was it a very scary feeling that that was happening at 25 weeks? Very. And a lot of grief. And how do babies this tiny survive? And what's going to happen to us? What's, you know, what what does the future look like for for this baby? Mm Mm-hmm. Is he going to make it? And if he does make it, is he going to be, is he going to have challenges for the rest of his life? So that was at 25 weeks and I had to go into the hospital from then on. So I spent three days in the hospital and it was torturous to be away from my family. Um, So when your water breaks that early, the protocol is that you go to the hospital 
and that just being separated from my family was awful and not knowing what was going to happen. I was there for three days and then labor started. And so I was 26 weeks, four days and in labor with this tiny baby. And they said, it's like all of a sudden they knew that it was a problem with the placenta and your placenta is abrupting and we need to do a C-section. And oh, by the way, since it's so early, you're going to have to have a classical incision. Hmm. So there was just so many layers of this is going so terribly wrong all at once. And not only is this baby going to be affected, any future will be affected too. Because now I have a classical scar. Right. Did they do a classical scar? Yes, they did. They got in there and said, oh, there's no possible way we can fit in a low transverse. Here goes the classical. And he came out. He cried. He had Apgars of eight and nine. He weighed less than two pounds. He was itty bitty. I'm sorry, what? He was itty bitty. Yes, he, he was, was very itty bitty. And yeah. he spent 99 days in the NICU. So I threw myself into pumping for him because that's kind of all I could do. And we didn't actually transition from pumping to breastfeeding until he came home, but we were able to successfully do that. And so I was able to breastfeed him. That and takes he, a lot of dedication, for sure. It takes a lot of dedication. <laughs> it takes getting up in the middle of the night to pump. It, Yeah. Yeah. And working through any of the issues that he has in the NICU. There were times when he was NPO because of a, a bowel issue. Uh, he never had necrotizing enterocolitis like they worry about, but they, you know, that is their main worry. And so right. periodically they right. take him off. Yeah. So that was tough on our whole family. And we uh, considered being done after that. I always wanted a big family, but, you know, what do you do after that? Well, that's a lot to process and, and, and work around for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And did, again, wondering what he would what his future would be like. Right. Did he have any problems from the health issues that persisted? He is 9 years old now and people who meet him for the first time have no clue. Mhm. They have no clue what his history is. He is on the small side for his age, but other than that, he looks very much like his peers. Mm-hmm. He's a little miracle baby. Yeah. So we watched him, and we had him followed by a developmental pediatrician, and it was at his 18-month appointment with them where they said, you know, he's doing really well. We don't see any signs of cerebral palsy. You know, he's a little bit behind on speech, but that, that will come. And and yes, it did. He's a chatterbox. Um <laughs> And by that point, my husband and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, what if? What if we start talking about this? And so we did We did start talking about number four. I was still breastfeeding him. I wanted to get him through his first two winters. And I also did not want to try trying to conceive again while breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be completely done with that. So 
it was shortly after his second birthday that we slowly and gently weaned. And then I got pregnant like two weeks later, <sighs> like right on the dot. Wow. That was right away. Yeah. 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 It was amazing. And that was the only pregnancy where I had no bleeding at all. Hmm. Which was a welcome surprise because I don't think I could have handled seeing blood after what happened with, with Quinn. His name is Quinn, my, my middle yeah. child. And I was going to say that that was sort of a little blessing in disguise because I can't imagine that it would have been triggering otherwise. Oh, incredibly, incredibly triggering. But the next issue was, how is this birth going to go? And I had done a lot of research in the intervening years, and I felt like I had a pretty good case for VBAC for me. I'd already had two pretty straightforward births, and, you know, there really isn't a lot of research about classical scars. Once you start looking at it, they're just excluded from VBAC trials, and that becomes self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Right. It's never given a chance. Yeah. Yeah, they're never given a chance. By then, I had joined ICANN. We had a very active local chapter that I participated with, and then I also got connected with the Special Scars Group. And that is for women who have scars other than just below transverse. They have classical, inverted T, myomectomy, J, um, extensions. Yeah, there are. there's quite a variety in there. And I found other women who had done VBAC after their, their special scars. And so then the next question became, where do we find support? Right. And I lost... I lost count how many doctors and midwives I talked to before I could find one who said, well, officially I have to tell you no, but unofficially, sure, let's go ahead and do this. And that was kind of the best I could hope for. I think it was at least partly political, as you and I talked about earlier. That was around the time that uh, the midwife bill, the midwifery bill passed in, in New York. Mm -hmm. And a lot, a lot of the midwives were now practicing out in the open, but they also were a little bit pickier about their clients because now they were under scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So all of that happened at the same time. There were a lot of midwives who said, personally, I think you're going to be fine. Professionally, this is career suicide. Mm. So I ended up going with, a, an OB who had had a VBAC with a classical in his history. He had done that before. And I brought one of those home birth midwives with me to the hospital. Okay. And did they know each other? Did they have any kind of professional um, relationship? Yeah, a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, they had worked with each other in the past. I don't think that they would have been each other's go-to so to speak, but they had worked together before. Okay. Um, and so they, they actually made a, a decent team. I had four days of prodromal labor right around my due date. Oh, by the way, my first two kids were born spontaneously on their due dates. The <laughs> odds are just incredibly slim. Very slim. About that happening. But uh, I fully expected this baby to come on her due date too. And my due date came and went. And all I had was prodromal labor. And so... 
that went on for four days and I was exhausted. And the OB said, you know, your blood pressure is kind of creeping up. What if we just break your water? And so that's what we did. I went to the hospital at, and he broke my water at nine and she was born at 1240. Aha, that was quick. It was quick. It was, and we had, you know, people kind of coming in and out and I could hear there were conversations in the hallway going, and she wants a natural birth now? Because they knew that I was this crazy lady who, classical scar, why would I do this? But those people actually didn't come into my room, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And and actually, one of my favorite memories is that while I was pushing, I only pushed about two and a half times. But while I was pushing, I had both the doctor and the midwife waiting to catch her, waiting to catch my baby. So they were side by side. I really felt like I had the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So that worked out really well. And uh, she had a loop of cord around her neck and the doctor was just very calm, just slipped it off and then said, here's your baby. And she was beautiful and she was perfect. And, oh, um, I did have a scare during that pregnancy, though, because at my 20-week ultrasound, they said, look, you have a low-lying anterior placenta and it's over your scar. We think you might have a creta. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So I knew going into that, that was one of my top three fears was having placenta accreta. Um, and I knew also that ultrasound is not very accurate. Uh, at the time, there was a 50% false positive rate. But still, you know, you've got that kind of hanging over your head. Yeah. And for those yeah. listening who don't know what a placenta accreta is, let's explain it. So when you have a a scar in your uterus, and it doesn't even necessarily have to come from a C-section, but most of the time it's a C-section, if the placenta implants over the scar, it can embed too deeply. It can get stuck. And sometimes it can even grow through the scar and start attaching to your bowel or your bladder, and it can become invasive. And it's a pretty scary thing. It's got a significant mortality rate. Mm-hmm. And I am going to link also in the show notes to the pod episode that I did with Jen Camel um, from VVAC Facts, where we talk a lot about Akrita. So people can yeah. go there to get more info, too. Yeah. So that was really scary. And they couldn't tell me definitively one way or another. Um, but I had one more ultrasound at 35 weeks and the placenta had moved up. But because my scar is vertical, they couldn't totally guarantee it was off the scar. So it was just kind of a wait and see thing. Mm -hmm. So right after she was born and I said, okay, so how long do we wait until the, and my midwife's like, don't worry, it's right there. Just push it out. And I did. And I pushed the placenta out. It was in one piece. And once again, I was on that high that I'd felt with my older daughter that I wish I could bottle and save for later. Or maybe sell because I would be richer than Bill Gates. <laughs> For it sure. Such an inc- it is such an incredible, it cures what ails you. It's amazing, that birth high. Mm-hmm. So it was beautiful. Oh, and my midwife told me later that she left that hospital that day and went to another hospital where she has privileges. And uh, the nurses there came up to her and said, we heard what you did. Like, news of my birth had spread throughout the birth community as a whole region that day. Isn't that interesting how that happens? <laughs> that you know, like, that it just wildfire spreads. Yeah, something yeah. different happened. And, yeah. 
something different. And another midwife called me a couple of days later and she's like, you're the talk of the town. I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess that's why that birth had to be in a hospital. I really wanted it to be at home, but I think we opened some eyes that day. Mm. That makes sense. That's a great point. Yeah. So we had four kids. We had boy, girl, boy, girl, and it looked like we were we were kind of done. I was really sad about that, though, because I love birth. I love babies. And again, I always wanted a big family. But it didn't happen for five years. Now, was um, this, should I ask if it was a surprise? You don't have to tell me. You can choose to not say. I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to be prying, but... <laughs> Um, there were a series of surprises that led to baby number five. Okay. Yeah. And by this point, you know, the political climate in our area had really settled down and that midwife that came with me to the hospital was totally on board with the home birth this time around. Mm-hmm. And so I was so excited. We're finally going to get this, this home birth that I've been dreaming about for 10 years at that point. And, it had been 10 years. Oh, my goodness. And also, you'd already done it. I mean, you had had a VBAC at the hospital. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So this would have been my fourth vaginal birth and my second VBAC. And so, and it would have been, there were eight years from my C-section to this home birth. Mm-hmm. So quite a, quite a bit of time. That pregnancy was so hard, though. I, I just thought, am I older? Is that what it is? I was sick for the first time. I'd never had morning sickness. And now all of a sudden, I had it. And I didn't find out until after that baby was born that I have Lyme disease. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to share some resources about that, too, but it is endemic in my area, mm-hmm. and it was debilitating. So do you think that it was that all the uh, what made it so hard was not necessarily the pregnancy itself, but the Lyme disease? I Yes, I definitely think the two of them together mm-hmm. knocked me flat. It was it was really tough, but I didn't pursue any treatment because I thought, oh, I'm just pregnant, and it must be because I'm older that my body's not handling it as well as, as it has previously. And we didn't think to look further than that. And then when I was six months pregnant, my dad passed away. Oh. So, so that added another element of I'm pregnant, I'm older, and I'm grieving. And I'm so that must be yeah. what's going on. Mm. Yeah, so there was just a lot going on. And we didn't pursue it until afterward, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Before I forget, though, if you have any resources um, for Lyme disease that you would like me to link, please send them to me. I'm happy to do so. Happy to to put them there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um, I had a lot of irritable uterus, too, which I'd never really had. And I don't know if that was related or if it was just that last summer was super hot. It was hotter than I remember ever having since mm. moving to New York, and that, I was in my third trimester. Those are two things you do not want to come together. No, no, <laughs> no. So it was it was tough. And by September, when my older kids started going back to school, I was very ready for that baby to come. He was due September twenty third, and again, I was fully expecting him to come on his due date. And um, oh, and we kept our alternating pattern: boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. That's just how that worked out. (laughs) But at 39 weeks, my blood pressure was starting to go up. And I do think that was Lyme related. I think my body was just so overloaded and overwhelmed. 
So but, there's this re- like we always think babies come when they're ready in terms of like when babies' lungs are completely full and, 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 and cooked. And that's true. But we've also thought like, you know, we can't have gestational periods that are longer because it's kind of what like we have the biggest pelvises that we can have so in order to walk and also give births and our big brains make it so that baby's big head like they come born you know so so incapable right so immature because right the head can't get any bigger to be able to get through that pelvis right but right there's some research and i'll link it here and i and it and i've it it came out a couple of years ago and then no more has been done with that. And I wish there were more people looking into it. I was saying that it's not that that determines gestation. It is actually metabolic rate in that when you're pregnant, your body is being taxed, right? You have to, right. you know, basically keep you alive and keep baby alive. And when it gets to a point where it starts being metabolically dangerous for you to have to create all that energy, expend all those calories to keep you and baby alive, that your body goes like, nope, got to burn, got to give birth. Yeah. So it's... Yeah and, then, yeah. and then birth itself is a huge metabolic expenditure too. Yeah. 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 For sure. So it's like, I, I am, and this is completely speculate, complete speculation, right? There's only this one research about it, but it makes sense that, especially like you being so on your due date, and then for the previous baby going past your due date, and then for this one when you've had such a harder pregnancy and metabolic, metabolically, I can't say it now, metabolically, you are being more taxed that suddenly baby comes quicker. Yeah. Yeah, that that is really interesting. I would be curious to know what total what hypothesis else is out there on that yeah, topic. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh so it was at 39 weeks with my blood pressure starting to go up. My midwife said, "You know, go home and stay off your feet. Let's just not tax your body anymore." And I was so angry. Mm-hmm. I was just so upset about the situation. What more could I have done? You know, I thought I was managing every curveball I had been thrown that year, and there had been several, but it just was too much. And I was just not happy to go home and basically be on bed rest. And I came back a couple days before my due date, and she's like, I think we need to make you have a baby. We can break your water at home, That and that's something that can be done. And so we decided to do that the next day, which was the day before my due date. And I had some prodromalish contractions that uh, that whole week anyway, so I, I knew it wouldn't take much more than a nudge. So we decided to do it that way. She came over the next day, and I had already been having contractions for several hours at that point. Not very strong, not very consistent, but they were they were there. And she broke my water at about ten in the morning. And I was, and then she's like, okay, go out for a walk. And I was so excited. I hadn't really been outside much in the last week because, you know, it was basically on bed rest. And it was a gorgeous day, completely beautiful day. First day of fall, I went outside. My husband and I went for a walk in the woods. And then we kind of stayed in the backyard on the back deck. It was us and the midwives and my 
my friend who's a birth photographer. We were all hanging out on the back deck for several hours while I was contracting away. And in my head, I'm like, oh, this will all be over and done by the time the kids get home from school. Not quite. Well, because your previous experience when you're, there, you know, with water breaking, that water was broken and then poof, you know, yeah, shortly thereafter, yeah, was, baby. Yeah. I was hoping for a similar experience and that's not quite how it worked out. Mm. So the kids started coming home from school, but they were so excited. And um, except for my my kindergartner, she was just not really interested in any of that. But my older daughter has a future as a doula. She is just very motherly and so excited to have this have this little baby. Is and she all of them were the one in the picture oh, that's like lying down yes. next to your Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. That's her. Um, and they were helping me walk around the backyard and you know like, come on, it's time to get up, trying to make this baby come out. And then everyone else went and had dinner, and I was still laboring. The sun started going down, and that was so demoralizing because I had watched the sun rise when my contractions first started, and I was still at it. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely in transition by then, and we were back upstairs in my room. I thought about giving birth outside, but then I'm like, how am I going to get back up the stairs afterwards? <laughs> so we went back into my bedroom, and... I was just like, I feel so much pressure, but I'm not ready to push. I feel so much pressure. And my midwife's like, I know, that's your baby. You're getting close. You're getting close. You're almost there. And then I let out one little grunt, and the whole room just sprang into action. They're like, okay, we're catching a baby right now, right here, right now. And he didn't come. The next contraction, I didn't feel the urge to push at all. And then a couple contractions later, I grunted again, and no, no. And my midwife's like, I know you hate this but I think I need to check you and see what's going on. And yes, I hated it, but I had been in transition for a long time at that point and ready to move on to the next stage. So she checked me and she's like, you just have some cervix left. And then next contraction, I'm going to hold it back. Oh my gosh, that was painful. Mm. That was one of the most painful things I've ever felt in my entire life. And she did that twice. And the second time I said, stop it, get out. And she said, that's your baby. And yes, he was finally descending. He was coming out. I was pushing. And I was so ready to just, okay, fire in the hole. Here he <laughs> comes. I'm ready to blast him out. And she's like, slow down, you know, breathe, sing, do whatever you need to do. You are not going to tear. Okay. And I'm like, I don't care about tearing. I just want him out. But she did. She convinced me to slow down. And his head came out and she said, oh, there's cord. And she tried to pull it off, but it, it was too tight. And so he was just born the rest of the way. And then I heard everyone else in the room saying, one, two, three, four. That's how many times they unwrapped him from his cord. Oh, wow. Four times. My midwife had never seen that in, in 30 years. Mm -hmm. Because like a one way around, I think cord around the neck gets a really bad rap <laughs> pun intended <It> sure does. <laughs> because people get really concerned and what like one time around it's super common i would say probably 30 percent. i don't know i don't know the, sp the specific statistic but I'm, i think I would, it is 30 percent. yeah so it's it's it, and you just like unwrap and you got to remember babies aren't really quite breathing 
through their nose yet. So it's more right. of oxygen through blood, through the cord itself. Right. Yeah. But when it's that tangled, the the you know the concern there is more like well there's more attached to it right there's on the other end there's the placenta attached to your uterus so how is that pulling right. and tugging doing any is that keeping baby like yeah yeah right so we we think that's why he was having trouble descending mm-hmm. and there had been some meconium in the waters and that's now that isn't surprising but and I've told people this before since then where they say oh that sounds so scary and I say by the time I understood what was going on, it was over. You know, my midwife just managed it so calmly and so quickly that I had a baby in my arms before I said, oh, wait, there was cord, wasn't there? And he was pink and he was breathing and everything was fine. And so it wasn't scary for me at the time. Mm-hmm. My husband thought it was, but that's because he had a better view than I did. Um, right. And right. I have some yeah. really good pictures of it. <laughs> But yeah, it was, and it was over. And I just said, we just had a home birth. And it's, it finally happened. Here he is. Mm-hmm. And he was my smallest baby, I think, a combination of how sick I was without knowing it. And he was also my most active baby. I mean, someone could have done a kick count from across the room. Well, that's how he got that tangled with the cord. It's all about moving around. Yes, and the cord was 29 inches long. Which I find fascinating that that the cord does, like if it's a very active baby, the cord will grow more. It'll be a longer cord to accommodate all that movement. And if it's a baby that doesn't move that much, like the cord tends to be shorter. Yeah. Yeah, so that... That's how that worked out for him. He definitely had enough room. Mm-hmm. How big was but he? But that's why that labor was longer. Right. Yeah. There were more things going on inside. Yeah. Yeah. And still you did it. Yeah. Did it. And I was really, really happy, but I didn't quite get the birth high that I had with my daughters. And... You know, I kind of wonder if that has something to do with how sick I was, too. Um, that I just didn't recover as well this time around. Um, I'm doing okay now. I've gotten into more treatment, and that's it's been helping a lot. But at the time when we didn't know what was going on, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was a slow start. How did breastfeeding go? It went wonderfully. My uh, milk came in the next day. And he started packing on weight. And again, back to your earlier comment about how the two-week rule is doesn't really apply to everybody. Um, he gained weight so quickly compared to my other babies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because he was smaller than they were or, you know, what combination of things it was. But he was well above his birth weight by two weeks. Yeah. So it's just not a hard and fast rule. Not at all. No, no. Like each baby, we're all, why would it be? We're all so different. All our bodies, you know, have the same component, but we all have different ways of metabolizing, different ways of sleeping, different ways, like our bodies are different shapes and sizes. And yeah. 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 It was, it was just, he's a different kid and it was at a different time in my life Mm -hmm. or any combination of things that we don't even know yet. So 
so yeah, it went great. And he was just loved on by all of his siblings. And I'm really glad that they weren't there to watch the birth itself, but they were there in the process. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that they got to see what it can be like. Yeah. And also that they're, you know, they're older, like all the, your first four, you had them sort of close together. Um, right. Now it seems like you've got a little bit more help built in with this little one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my oldest two fought over him. <laughs> <laughs> and they're great babysitters. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's worked out really well. Good. Oh, my stories. You... And since then, I have I have finished training just recently as an ICANN cap chapter co-leader. So I'm I'm into the birth community now too. Yay! Oh. We need more ICANN leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. No. And so you had you've had this incredible range and spectrum of birth. Mm-hmm. What? are your views on it now like what what would you tell the listeners what do you do you know i don't want like go wise words but any aha moments anything <laughs> you know of you've had quite the variety yeah um and and i wouldn't say that any one of them was my favorite i think uh in a lot of ways each kid got the birth that they needed but what i have said for years as a piece of advice is go ahead and listen to my stories and your mom's and your sister's and your best friend and that random lady at the grocery store who has to tell you her story too. In the end, you have to make the choices that are right for you. And don't try and do it just like somebody else. And don't do it just to please somebody else. It's okay to make your own journey. Hmm. It sure is. It sure is. And that's it. Only you can know the birth that's right for you at that time in your life. Right. You're the one who gets to live with the story. Mm -hmm. Not me, not your mom, not your sister, not the random lady at the grocery store. This is your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like, you know, you're the one that's going to parent this child. Yes. Yes. And starting off parenthood with a, an empowering birth you're just miles ahead of of what you can be. It took me so long to bond with my first baby because of all the the things that happened with him. He was five months old before I said, wow, I really do love my baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, traumatic births have that thing that you need to process a bunch of stuff first. Right. Before you can see what's around you, yeah. And you need to process it with the right people. And I will also say to the listeners or anybody else who might listen to this, don't ever say, at least you have a healthy baby. Oh, please. <laughs> Nothing <God>. helpful. <laughs> Nothing helpful comes after the words, at least. Hmm. And, and from my perspective of having an early preemie, by the time we were willing to take him out into public, it wasn't obvious what his birth was like. It wasn't obvious that he had a whole slew of specialists who were following him. All people saw was that he was a baby with his family. And so when you say, at least you have a healthy baby, you don't know what wound you're rubbing salt into. Mm -hmm. 
he was not, you know, health isn't always obvious. Yeah, he was, that's what they were seeing there after 99 days in the NICU. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just listen to people. Don't make assumptions. Mm-hmm. That's what I tend to say. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the show to share your stories and giving us all this diff- the different facets of births, according to you. <laughs> <laughs> your your different facets of births, which is you know that's that's quite a spectrum, Bronin. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, I've had a lot of fun talking about it. I love talking about birth. Well, we're so happy, and like the we as in the birth community is so happy that you've you've come to this side and are doing, um, are becoming an an ICANN leader. Really exciting. Me too. I've wanted to do that for a while. It never felt like the right time, but the opportunity arose and I took it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have, you also have, I wonder if you wouldn't also be a really good Leche League leader (laughs) with all your breastfeeding experiences. Yeah. And after that very first pediatrician told me he was a member of La Leche League, I was really (gasps) down on them for a long time, but, but now I know better. Yeah. Now I know he's not representative of everyone there, and uh, and hmm. yeah, I I have lent support where I can over the years. Yeah, goes to show you, you've got to yeah. like it's by person by person who you can trust and make that connection and really question. You can't just blindly trust, no matter if they're a La Leche League representative or even a doctor. Well, well, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, in my mind, that goes without saying. I would trust the Laleta League representative to know about breastfeeding just (laughs) just because of like, you know, 10 years of dueling and two years of podcasting later. (laughs) I know that they come in all all aspects. Yeah, they certainly do. Well, thank you so, so much again for being here today. It's been a delight. Thank you. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. And if you're pregnant, do not forget to check out my Thrive with your newborn postpartum preparation classes at birthfulcourses.com. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Aeroflow Breast Pumps. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another mighty mama about her birth story or stories here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One, did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.